Well, thank you to our praise team for just the way that they've already helped to lead us this morning. Uh, thank you to all who are here worshiping the triune God with us this morning. If this is your first time, uh, we're glad you're here. Uh, we're, we're happy to have you join us. Uh, if I haven't met you, my name is Tyler Cash. I have the opportunity to uh, serve uh, this body as uh, one of the pastors, and uh, it has been a joy and privilege uh, to continue to, to grow with them. Uh, join me in the fourth book of the New Testament, the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we have some in the back. Uh, you can raise your hand. One of our ushers will be happy to grab you one. Uh, we teach the ESV uh, here primarily, so that's where I will be reading from this morning and where we will spend our time. We're going to look at John chapter 1, verses 35 through 42. John 1, 35 through 42. If you're new to the Bible, the uh, big numbers are the chapters, the small numbers are the verses. So we want you to follow along, look at the text, so you can make sure that I am reading it accurately. I'm going to read verses 35 through 42 for us. I'm going to then pray, and then we will look at this text. John 1, 35 reads, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for your kindness, for your mercy, for your grace. Uh, even the way that you have designed the church that you have created a family united through the blood of Christ and Christ alone to give glory and praise to your name. So now as we look at this text, we uh, seek to aim what it would uh, mean to even us, what it meant uh, in the context of when it was written and, and how it can apply to us today. We continue to aim to make much of you. 
Father, I need your help. Um, I ask that you would be with me, that you would speak through me. I pray that those that may have walked in here weary would be lifted up, would feel encouragement by the power of Christ. I pray that those that may have walked in haughty and proud would be humbled, that they would see their need, and they would see the Savior who answers that. So, Father, we ask what we know not, you would teach us. What we are not, you would make us. What we have not, you would give us. By your grace, for your glory, in Christ's name, God's people said, amen. A few months ago, I ran across an article titled, How Brad Pitt's Green Housing Dream for Hurricane Katrina Survivors Turned into a Nightmare. This article grabbed my attention because I remembered the devastation of Hurricane Katrina back in 2005. And I know that many were left homeless as a result. According to the article, Brad Pitt's organization, the Make It Right Foundation, came in after the hurricane and built 109 affordable homes in New Orleans community uh, that was really leveled by the storm. Quoting from the article, it states, I quote, the nonprofit housing developer says its mission is to improve the design and performance of affordable housing and to share best practices associated with the construction of such homes. Now, I, I think we could all agree, and we would rightly uh, say that so far, so good. Sounds like this is an admirable effort to support and serve a community dealing with the effects of a catastrophic event. But unfortunately, that's not the case. The article continued to reveal that only six of the 109 houses remain in reasonably good shape. I quote, the houses now list a frightening array of defects, water intrusion, black mold, porches rotted through, stair rails collapsing, fires caused by electrical problems, plumbing problems, Poor ventilation, other residents have reported termite infestation, and multiple residents have fallen sick, end quote. So what caused this? Well, the article continues. Many of the houses lacked ordinary, essential features, such as rain gutters, overhangs, waterproof painting, or covered beams, all of which are necessary to withstand New Orleans' subtropical climate and heavy rainfall. Clearly, in this nonprofit's effort to improve housing designs, they deviated so far from the essentials, they left them out entirely. And the result was devastating. Listen, there's a reason that houses are built in a particular way. Uh, that's because it works. There's a baseline blueprint that everyone must follow if they want a house capable of weathering a storm. 
The essentials are never optional, and they must be present in order to have a functional home. Simply put, you got to stick to the script when building a house. In church, while most of us in here are not building houses, the same principle applies to us. As Christians, we must be a people who stick to the script. There's one message that is essential to the Christian life, and that message is look to Christ. In times of peace, in times of war, in times of plenty, in times of want, in times of sickness and in health, the message is the same. Look to Christ. This is the theme we see threaded through the fabric of the text before us today. The message, look to Christ, holds this text together. And as we see this story unfold, I want us to take notice of three essential elements of discipleship on display. And listen, this is a very uh, application-oriented sermon. Lord willing, this text will spur us on towards discipleship and evangelism as a church. I'll give you the three essentials, and then we'll, we'll walk through it here. Three essentials of discipleship that are present in this passage are, one, respond to the message. Two, we rest in the message. And three, we report the message. But listen. Do not miss the primary component, the glue that holds these three together. And that is the message of Christ. Behold the Lamb. Look at our text, verse 35. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. So the scene is simple, right? Once again, John the Baptist is here with his disciples. Uh, Disciple here means follower. Uh, Remember, John the Baptist had his own following. Uh, He had been telling his followers that, hey, the Messiah is coming. Uh, I was sent to proclaim him. I was sent to to talk about him, to be uh, one, his, his forerunner. And here we read that Jesus is walking by. John the Baptist declares again, behold the Lamb of God. Notice, this is the same declaration he made in verse 29. We looked at that last week. You can look above in your text and see that there. We've got to take notice here that his message does not change. John the Baptist's message is always Look to Christ. Look to Jesus. You could say John the Baptist had a one-track mind. And that track led to the exaltation of Christ. He continues to put forth the Savior, knowing that pointing people to Jesus Christ is the only direction worth traveling. In our current cultural moment, we, listen, we desperately need Men and women committed 
to sticking to the script, to putting forth Christ unapologetically, to providing the one answer that the world needs. Listen, the Christian message is simple, and it does not need your improvements. Church, we have nothing to offer the world but Christ himself. Amen. Too many in our day are quick to either alter the message in an effort to make it more palatable or consumer-friendly. This is the sad reality of too many churches in our day. Uh, So many people have aborted the message, behold the Lamb of God, for a message of behold the relativity or behold the trendiness or the ever so popular behold the social justice. It's a come and see what we do not what Christ has done. And brothers and sisters, we cannot trade in the reliable and unfailing message to behold the Lamb of God for a cheap imitation in our efforts to improve the message. We cannot abandon the mission and message when seemingly faced with opposition or failure. No. We continue to offer the one message, behold the Lamb of God. Then we see here, there's some fruit. We see in verse 37, the two disciples, they, they heard him say this, right? And what does it say? They followed Jesus. So here we see the first ingredient of discipleship. John the Baptist's disciples respond to the message. Now, it's right to say that these men did not know exactly everything there was to know about Christ at this point. Um, you got to remember what's happening here, right? Uh, Jesus is gathering his first group of disciples. He's, he's calling people to himself. Uh, these two will be a part of the 12 that followed Jesus during his earthly ministry for at least three years, and they will indeed learn a lot more about this God-man, Jesus Christ. At this point, they don't really understand exactly, but what do they do? They follow. They, they go. Um, I know there's a lot of people in here that, you know, we, we have uh, membership interviews, and we, we talk to people about their conversion and making sure that uh, they don't think that joining a church saves them, uh, that they know that uh, you get saved and then you join a church, a body of believers. And I talk to people, and a lot of people don't, they don't really uh, have like a, I can point to this moment when I was converted. It was a gradual uh, work of God's grace through uh, faithful parenting, through uh, faithful just um, proclamation of the word of God. But I, myself, and there are some that do, I can point to the day and time where I know that the Lord changed my heart. I had a Saul to Paul moment. But I'll tell you, even then, right, when I first heard the message of the gospel, I didn't know (laughs) all it was to know about Christ. All I knew was that I had a need and I needed to follow Christ. I needed to follow Jesus. And that is always the first ingredient to discipleship for everyone. 
We respond to the call to follow Christ. It's a response here. Friends, those that are gathered here today, let me first just ask you a question. Have you responded to the message? Behold the Lamb of God. Have you responded? Have you turned your eyes upon him and followed him? And listen, that is the most important question you will ever answer in your life because it is the one question The one answer you will give that has eternal ramifications. You don't have to know it all. You don't have to have it all together. You don't need to take anything with you. You can leave it all behind and turn to Christ. Turn to him. Respond. It doesn't end there. After we respond, we rest. We rest in the message of Christ. Look at verses, well, look at verse 38 with me. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? Now listen, this question is profound. Okay, here Jesus is asking them to articulate what they are seeking. He's essentially asking, like, what's on your mind? What's at the forefront of your desires here? Like, what do you wish to accomplish in your pursuit? This is synonymous to his words to his disciples in Matthew 16, 24, where Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, then what do you do? You deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow. Jesus' message is clear, brothers and sisters. Following Christ means surrendering to a life of sacrifice and self-denial. A life of discipleship is a life of continued self-evaluation. While Jesus confronts us with the question, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? And look, I'll be honest, right? That is an often uncomfortable question. It is often uncomfortable for me because my sinful desires still wage war on the spirit. I often want what I think is best. I often want what I want in the moment that will bring me the most gratification. But see... The good thing about Jesus is that he doesn't mind asking his followers to check their hearts and desires because he knows that he has overcome all the sins that self-checks reveal. He's overcome. And when our sin is revealed and we confess it and trust ourselves to our Savior, Jesus always gives us exactly what we need. It may not always be what we want or what we think we need, but it will always be what's best for us. So here we see Jesus stops. He asks these two men, he says, listen, take an honest assessment of your pursuit. And their response is one we must all learn from. 
Look at the second part of 38 with me. And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher. And John's including this here for his uh, Greek readers. And he said, they, they say to him, they say, well, where are you staying? And then verse 39, he said to them, come and you will see. Now, first we see these disciples display a desire to go and learn from Jesus. They want to hear more. They, they call him rabbi, which was a common title in this time for someone who was a teacher. And the student-rabbi relationship was very intentional and relational. Rabbis and students, they, they spent a lot of time together. Uh, that naturally included kind of uh, teaching. They would teach them, but they would also teach them through their life. They would invite them into their lives to spend time with them, to, to see how they lived, how they practically applied their teachings. So I want to give us a, just a quick application here. True discipleship is not limited to meeting with someone every other week and studying the Bible. That is a major part, but that is only a part. True discipleship is sharing your life with people, in inviting them into your, your home, to your, your, your space, to see how you love your spouse, to see how you love your kids, to see how you've embraced a life of singleness and serve joyfully with zeal. True discipleship is a, a, a life invitation. And as Christ followers, we follow our Savior's example of hospitality as he extends the invitation, come and you will see. What did these guys do? They went. Verse 39, so they came and saw where he was staying. They stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Listen, it's important to note here that Jesus was likely staying in a very humble abode. Scripture teaches us that uh, Jesus essentially was, was homeless during his time on the earth. He and his disciples basically couch surfed uh, during their days of ministry. Luke records in chapter 9 of his gospel account, uh, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to that person, he said, hey, look, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man, speaking of himself, has nowhere to lay his head. So listen, Jesus is not inviting these men to come check out his luxurious crib. He's, he's not inviting them to the mansion on the hill. No, Jesus is inviting them to remove themselves from all distractions and to find true fulfillment and rest in being with him. Listen, these guys would have likely been taught and known the Jewish expectation that the Messiah would appear in worldly royalty and dignity and glory. So they were likely perplexed when they entered the scene. Brothers and sisters, Jesus' message is clear. It's not worldly fame or riches that provide true consolation to the restlessness 
of the souls of man. Authentic, genuine rest can only be found in Christ himself. Great church father Augustine sums it up in his famous quote, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Most importantly, our Lord and Savior galvanizes this truth for us in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, where he proclaims, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And this is precisely what we see the disciples do here. Even though they did not fully understand everything about Jesus, they, they come to Jesus and the text tells us it wasn't a quick stop here. We read, they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. So apparently the conversation was so good that one evening, one short moment of time would not suffice. They stayed with him, spent time with him. And listen, I, I really think the point that John wants his reader to see is that these men had a desire to learn from Jesus, to gain a personal understanding of who Jesus is here. Listen, that takes intentional time with Jesus. Brothers and sisters, are you resting in Christ? Can you take time to rest with Christ, to learn who he is, to be reminded of what he has done, what he has accomplished is the God-man, Jesus Christ himself. We are fools to think that we can know Christ without taking the time to rest with Christ. We are to be pitied if we bank our salvation on a one-time repeat-after-me prayer that we said 15 years ago and had had no desire to follow him since. Just as the body needs daily rest from exhaustion of the toil, the soul must rest and find its daily restoration in daily rest with Jesus. We must rest with our Savior. Young and old and in between, it doesn't matter who you are or what you're going through. The famous hymn reminds us, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Behold, Christ is the message we respond to. It is the message we rest in. And as we close, we see that it is the message we report. Verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now listen, here we are given one of the two disciples' names. Uh, we see that one of them was Andrew, and we are told that this is Simon Peter's brother. We don't get the other disciples' name. Uh, most Orthodox scholars agree that the author himself, John, was likely this 
uh, other disciple in this sequence of events, his attention to the details of what's going on here, the, the hours and the other uh, parts of the narrative would support this idea, in my opinion. But regardless, we read that one of the men who responded and rested with Jesus Christ was Andrew. And evidently, resting with Jesus had a dramatic effect. Something happened to him. Look at verse 41. He first found his own brother, Simon. He said to him, we have found the Messiah. So what does he do with the message? Well, he reports it to his brother. Now, once again, remember He doesn't know everything there is to know about Christ. He doesn't have a fully uh, complex view of exactly what being the Messiah even meant at this point. But they had been looking for the Messiah. Talked about that last week, right? The Jews spent their whole lives watching and waiting for the Messiah to arrive. Side note here, the word Messiah means anointed one, the one that's set apart for a particular role. Uh, Christ is the Greek word meaning the same thing. So Christ, for anyone who's ever questioned, uh, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title given to Christ, uh, really showing that he is the fulfillment of all that were appointed as anointed ones, prophet, priest, kings in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of them all. And I think it's very important also to take note that the fact that he takes the message to his brother first. He wants to make sure his family is aware of this monumental discovery. I think this is an important reminder to us as we navigate the relationships that have been providentially given to us by God. I look to Augustine again as he says, all people should be loved equally, but you cannot do good to all people equally. So you should take particular thought for those who, as if by lot, happen to be particularly close to you in terms of place, time, or any circumstance, end quote. Listen, brother and sister, let me encourage you. I am admittedly speculating because the text does not specifically tell us here, but I imagine there was a lot of places that Andrew could have gone. I imagine that he could have gone a lot of places to to say, hey, look, we just found the Messiah. And it would have caused a lot of commotion. But where does he turn his attention to? He goes to his brother. He, He goes to his family. And look, I know a lot of you are struggling with the mundane. The difficulty of the mundane is often found in our concentric circles in our lives and those that are closest to us, right? But trust 
that the Lord has you right where he wants you for a reason. Don't try to stiff arm. Don't try to push, push those relationships away. Don't neglect those relationships for this ministry opportunity that you really want to do. I could care less about your social media interactions or your ministry over here if you're failing to love your family well. We must be a people that are intentional with the relationships the Lord has given to us. We must report the message to those around us. Lord willing, when we report the message of Christ, by his grace, he will do the transformational work that individuals need as he sees fit. Look at 42. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. Here we take notice that Jesus needs no one to tell him who this man was. He says, you are Simon, son of John. Listen, Jesus knew his identity. And this should encourage us all to remember that we don't need to pretend when we come to Christ. We don't need to put on our best face and pretend like something that we're not. Jesus knows us better than we ever know ourselves. He already knows that sin you're trying to hide over here, he sees it. That pride you're harboring in your heart. The feeling of guilt and shame. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter. He, he knows. He knows you. And here we see our Lord do something that's also done with other significant leaders of his people. He, he changes his name. This was the case with Abram to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah, and Jacob to Israel. And here Jesus does this with Peter. Look, we don't know exactly why this is done in this manner here in this text. John just tells us that it happens. He doesn't give us a lot of context here. And we're going to kind of continue as we continue to explore this gospel to learn more about Peter and see some of his old characteristics continue to try to, to fight through the, the way, the, the, the war with the spirit and the flesh, even with him. But here, I think the most important thing for us to see is the power of Jesus on display. He knows us, and he alone has the power to change us. He changes those who come to him. He works in and through the message, behold the Lamb of God. See, when we stick to the script of beholding Jesus, Jesus does the work. He's the one that changes hearts and makes people new. You and I don't have the power to save anyone. 
We have zero power within ourselves to make anyone change anything, especially if they're changing for the right reasons. But our job is to put Christ forth as we render the call, behold the Lamb of God. Church, brothers and sisters, may we be a people who stick to the script and remember the essentials of discipleship. We respond to Christ. We rest in Christ. And we report the message of Christ. And we let the power of Christ handle the results. Listen, if we fail to do so, we too will find our houses of faith falling apart. If we try to formulate the message the way that we think the message should be given, we will fail. If we turn to anything else other than the message of Christ came to save sinners, we've aborted the one mission that will help those around us. The one thing they truly need. So I ask you today, which one of these does the Lord need to work in you? Do you simply need to respond to Jesus today? Do you need to find your rest with Jesus today? Or maybe you have fallen silent about your faith. And you need God to just change your heart and to reveal a new zeal and joy of sharing the good news of Jesus. Whatever the case, the solution is rather simple. Behold the Lamb of God. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you, Lord, that you have not created us in a way that leaves us to save ourselves. As Christians, you have not given us the task to save anyone. But you alone, O oh Lord, have the power to save. Lord, help us to remember that. Help us to proclaim that. Lord, if there's anyone here that does not know you, pray, Lord, that today would be the day that they respond, that they would cast their cares, they would repent of their sins and turn to you as the full atonement of their salvation. Father, would you give us zeal? Would you help us to leave here different than we walked in? Make us a people that are eagerly proclaimers of the good news. Hold the Lamb of God. I ask that in Christ's name.